verses 1 through 8 of Revelation chapter 6, it does begin to unfold some of that part of Revelation that everyone's fascinated about the events of history as they will unfold in the future. Starting at verse 1, it says, And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and him that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another, and there was given unto him a great sword. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse, and he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand, and I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny, and see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was Death, and hell followed with him. And power was given unto him over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful today to be in your house. We are thankful for your word that you've preserved for us. You've made this day. You've brought us here and you've set us under your word. And we ask, Lord, now that you would use your Holy Spirit to uh, open our hearts and minds to the truths contained therein, that we would look to these verses and that we would see the sovereignty of your Son. Please forgive me of my sins, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If we use the phrase, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, almost any person would instantly have some thought about what that phrase describes. Some would think of classical paintings. The minds of others would go to movies or novels that they've read. The, the really strange, one would think, strange ones would think of a, a group of professional wrestlers that took on this name uh, several years ago. I'm afraid that few, very few, would connect them to this text in Revelation 6 or know much about them. And yet that term, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, seems to engage the imagination and strike fear in those who essentially hear the hoofbeats thundering ever more loudly in the not-too-distant future. They bring with them deception and fear and famine and death. And yet, if we grasp the book of Revelation, these four horsemen are not merely, they are, they are merely the beginning of the troubles. They are not the complete story of troubles. And so as we look at them this morning and see that bad things are coming with them, 
we can really only conclude that even worse things are coming after them. Starting here in Revelation 6, we see this unfolding of the events of the seven-year tribulation period. It starts in this text, but it very certainly doesn't end in this text. And so just to give you a basic sketch, a basic outline of how this next section of Revelation unfolds, if you recall, in chapter 5, John has received a vision of the heavenly throne room, and he sees Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah who is standing there looking like a lamb that had been slain. And this lion-like lamb, this vision of Jesus, it's determined in chapter 5 that he alone is worthy to walk to the one on the throne, take the scroll from his right hand, and open the scroll that is sealed with seven seals. Now in Revelation 6, the Lord Jesus begins to break the seals on that scroll. You'll see in verse 1, the lamb opened one of the seals. And in verse 3, when he had opened the second seal. And so now this scroll of God's plan for human history is starting to be unsealed a bit by bit. This is going to continue through all of chapter 6 and 7. And then at the beginning of chapter 8, as each one of those seals are open, the corresponding judgment of God is poured out on the earth. And finally, as the seventh seal is opened, something different happens. Look at the beginning of chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. When he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. And I saw the seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. And so when, when the seventh seal is open, these seven angels appear, and they have seven trumpets. And then you can see how that starts to unfold. Chapter 8, verse 7, the first angel sounds his trumpet, and there is There is fiery hail mingled with blood that's hurled down to the earth, burning up a third part of everything. Those seven trumpets continue to be sounded, and the corresponding judgment to each one of those trumpets comes. And then within them are something that John's hardly even allowed to tell us about. There's seven thunders in Revelation 10. But John says in Revelation 10, I was about to write down what I heard in the voice, what I'd heard in a voice from heaven stopped me telling me don't write down what the thunders say. He's told in chapter 10 verse 7 that when the seventh angel sounds his trumpet, the mystery of God which he's declared to his servants the prophets will be finished. And then there's another series of sevens after that, just like the seventh seal started the seven trumpets, the seventh trumpet sounding seems to initiate the pouring out of seven vials. Literally, it's seven bowls uh, is what that means. And we'll see in Revelation 15 and 16, it's described as seven angels having these seven bowls that are the last plagues to be poured out on the earth. Every step of this leads to the ultimate destruction of this wicked world and it paves the way for the new creation of God. I can't wait until we get to Revelation 21 and get to preach about the new creation of God, but I'm going to have to wait. There is the ultimate promise of the reign of Jesus in glory with his servants 
for eternity. That's where all of this is taking us. This book is the revelation of Jesus Christ and every step of the way is intended to reveal him. And so just like in the first chapter when John receives that vision of Jesus and it's directly followed by the message to the seven churches, each of them addressed by Jesus. In chapter five, John sees a vision of Jesus and it's immediately followed by these seven seals. Each of these seals are opened by Jesus. One of the things that can happen to us is we can get lost in a text like this and put our focus on the wrong object. We'll look at these four horsemen this morning and the the judgments unfolding with them, but the real message of this text is that every one of those horsemen is called forward according to the plan of God. In fact, if you're reading in a, a different translation, you might note that where the King James Version has the four creatures around the throne as each one of these seals are opened. One of the creatures says, come and see. And we read that as John being told to come and see what happens. Many old manuscripts just have the word come, not addressed to John, but essentially addressed to those horsemen that that as the seal is open, a voice says come and it's calling them forward to execute this plan of God. So this morning, there is one simple truth that we need to embrace, and it has nothing to do with the color of these horses or the weapons that they carry or the plagues like war and famine and death that they bring. Here's what we need to know. Even in the darkest moments of human experience, history does not move forward at the will of wicked men, but instead unfolds through the sovereign declaration of Jesus Christ our Lord. Let me say it again, because I see some of you trying to write all that down. Even in the darkest moments of human experience, history does not move forward at the will of wicked men, but instead unfolds through the sovereign declaration of Jesus Christ our Lord. Never lose sight of the fact that it is Jesus who is executing God's plan for history. And I'll try to to come back to this idea and, and prove it to you by the time that we're done with this sermon. That Jesus, this is Jesus' plan for the world and it has always been what he's intended for the world. Now, since this text does have these four horsemen, I don't see any reason to try to break it up any differently than that. So let's just look at them one at a time. First, there's a white horse in verses one and two. I saw the lamb open one of the seals and I heard as it were the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, come and see. And so essentially what John is saying is when this seal is opened by Jesus, those four beasts that are around the throne that he's described all the way back in chapter four One of them speaks and it is a thunderous voice that's calling forward this judgment. In verse two, I saw and behold a white horse and he that sat on him had a bow and a crown was given into him and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Now back when I introduced the book of Revelation to you, I mentioned that there were several different methods of interpretation that have been applied to this book. And 
the view that you take of the book as a whole is going to determine how you see these verses. Who is this rider on the white horse? And folks have written and argued for century after century that this writer, some will say, well, this writer represents the gospel. No, it's the Antichrist. No, it's government persecution. No, this is Jesus himself. And and the the spectrum of possibilities is almost endless depending on how you interpret the book as a whole. One thing I feel confident in saying is this that Jesus is not this rider on the white horse in Revelation 6. Jesus has opened the seal that has called this rider forward. That's not to say that there are no similarities to Jesus here. There are, and I don't think that's a coincidence. We're going to see Jesus in Revelation 19 as heaven opens in Revelation 19 and he comes forward on a white horse of his own. Actually, look over there just a moment. Revelation 19. Starting at verse 11. And I saw heaven open. And behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he does judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, and out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he should rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is clearly Jesus. And he is on a white horse and he is wearing crowns. So there is a similarity between that text and what we're reading here in our text in Revelation 6. But the differences are even more dramatic than the similarities. There's nothing in Revelation 6 that says that this writer who's coming to conquer is making war in righteousness the way the description is in Revelation 19. There's nothing in Revelation 6 that says his eyes are like a flame of fire. He is not wearing blood-covered clothes. His, his name is not the word of God. Even those things which seem similar, when you look at them more closely, are actually different. The crown on this writer in our text is, the Greek word is a Stephanos, the, a, a victor's crown. The many crowns of Jesus in Revelation 19 are a different word. It's diadem. It's a royal crown or a priestly crown. And while both of them are armed, in Revelation 19, Jesus is armed with a sword that is the word of God. And the imposter here in Revelation 16 is armed with a bow. So let me just ask, can any of you think, do any of you associate the seven-year tribulation with some individual who is made to look like Jesus? An imposter? We learned that, that Daniel saw him as 
in a vision as the little horn that would conquer and consume other world powers, just like this rider goes out conquering and to conquer. Paul calls him the, the man of sin, the, the son of perdition, the lawless one. This same apostle John in his letters we saw that he calls him the, the deceiving antichrist who should come. If we identify this writer as any individual, it isn't Christ, it's the deceiver known as Antichrist. This rider on the white horse, the description in verse 2 is he has given a crown. Certainly not one that he has earned, nor one that he obtained himself. It is given to him, it is awarded to him. I think this wicked world is going to revel in the wonder of the Antichrist and begin by simply handing victory over to him that he so desperately wants. John MacArthur points out that this rider seems equipped for battle, but actually doesn't have to fight, even though he carries a bow. There's no mention of arrows, and without arrows, I don't know what good a bow is. He conquers through bloodless victories of peace treaties. This very closely matches what the Apostle Paul describes of the Antichrist that would achieve conquest through delusions and lies. The prophet Daniel saw him in Daniel 9.27 as a a conquering ruler who would make a covenant, would make essentially a, a peace treaty with many for seven years. But in the middle of that seven years, he's going to break his treaty with God's people, desecrating the temple sacrifices. So it seems the coming of the Antichrist, that's who this white horse rider is, the coming of Antichrist is going to seem like a peaceful enterprise. The world is going to be lulled into a sense of trust, awarding him a a crown of victory, a, a bloodless victory. But his purpose, clearly in verse two, is to conquer. I like the way the, the NIV puts this. He rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. His conquest comes through a deceptive peace. But that peace does not last. This white horse is just the first of four, and that peace is going to be broken when the next rider is going to bring devastating conflict throughout the earth. So let's look at the second rider, the the red horse, in verses 3 and 4. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the the second beasts say, come and see. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth. They should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. If you need any further evidence that the rider on the white horse, the first one, conquered via deceptive offers of peace, then the fact that the red horse comes next with the power to, quote, take peace from the earth ought to be adequate enough to prove that it's a deceptive peace that the white horse rider brings. The one on the red horse here has a a great sword in it and and wields it, bringing destruction and death. In verse 3, he, that is the lamb, opens the second seal and the red horse is called forward to the world scene. In verse 4, when verse 4 says this horse is red, by the way, it's not the most common Greek word for red. The most common Greek word for red is erythros. But this word is different. It's pyros. It's where we get our word 
pyre or fire from. The idea of this horse is fiery red, which is fitting to its purpose of destruction and bloodshed that he accomplishes. And when the wicked world embraces that deceitful antichrist, all all illusions of peace will ultimately be dissolved and there's going to be a wave of destruction sure to follow. The Apostle Paul assures us this is the natural end of mankind whose way is always destruction and misery and our feet are swift to shed blood. This is what's in our nature. The imagery in these verses is intended to inform us not just about the nature of war. It's it's giving a a way that not just limits the scope of, of death and destruction to the weapons that John saw, Right? This is not a war that's only going to be fought with bows and blades, which is all we've seen in these verses. We can understand that all of the implements of destruction that humanity has developed in the past 2,000 years are going to be included in this. One writer, as he wrote about this passage, referred to a speech by World War II General Omar Bradley and, and I had to go look at the speech, and some of what he said is just too insightful not to quote. This is what he said. World War II General Omar Bradley said, With the monstrous weapons man already has, humanity is in danger of being trapped in this world by its mortal, moral adolescence. Our knowledge of science has clearly outstripped our capacity to control it. We have many men of science, too few men of God. We have grasped the mystery of the Adam and rejected the Sermon on the Mount. Man is stumbling blindly through a spiritual darkness while toying with the precarious secrets of life and death. The world has achieved brilliance without wisdom, power without conscience. Ours is a world of nuclear giants and ethical infants. We know more about war than we know about peace, more about killing than we know about living. When General Bradley said that, it was 1948. The world has done nothing in the interim but learned how to deal out more decisive destruction. Yet the power that is given to this rider on the red horse isn't said to be limited to national conflict, you know, nation rising against nation. You might be familiar with that term from Jesus' words in Matthew 24. Nation rising against nation is not the only means of murderous destruction that this writer brings. Uh, Jesus describes this time in Matthew 24, verse 10, and says, Then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. On individual levels. This is, we've gotten brief glimpses of this in the past few years. In gangs of violent armed protesters assassinations and attempted assassinations of government leaders, murderers walking through schools and shopping malls with assault rifles. The history of mankind in the Old Testament was a story of God repeatedly using warring nations and violent men as a tool for judgment. This is telling us that the story of the future should unfold with the same expectation. So the rider on the white horse ushers in a deceptive peace. The rider on the red horse smashes that peace and ushers in a time of war and conflict. Then in verse 5, 
the third seal is opened. John says, I heard the third beast say, come and see. And I beheld and lo, a black horse and him that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts saying, a measure of wheat for a penny and three measures of barley for a penny and see that thou hurt not the oil and the wine. In the Old Testament, the prophet Jeremiah had the unenviable task of proclaiming to the nation that God's wrath would come. The Babylonian army would be God's tool to judge the nation. And when peace was lost and that battle came, Jerusalem in Jeremiah's day was placed under siege and the Babylonians starved out the residents of the city. Jeremiah recorded in the book of Lamentations about the destruction and misery that came along with it. His descriptions in Lamentations 5.10 was, our skin was black like an oven because of the terrible famine. So the picture there is like dehydration and, and famine left the people dry and charred. And now in Revelation, a broken peace and a destructive conflict, a, a black horse comes forward with a rider that's bringing famine. And this rider on this horse carries a pair of balances, a set of scales in his hand. The picture described here in these verses is of a devastating famine. Probably, we can presume, as the result of armies destroying crops or, or food production workers being killed, starvation is rampant. The past year or so, as some shortages have left uh, a few grocery store shelves, grocery store shelves, briefly empty, or inflation has made what is available expensive, it's the first time in my life where I have seen quite this kind of thing. Others, though, might recall or know stories of the days of uh, food rationing that accompanied World War II, and it was much more severe in England than it was in the United States, but war and, and famine seemed to be partners in plaguing the world at the same time. There is massive inflation that is the natural result of the short supply of food. And that seems to be why this rider on the black horse carries a set of scales, measuring out wheat and barley to be sold at a hefty markup. The, the detail of verse 6 is something that's a little lost in translation in our King James Version when we read it. It's not clear how much a measure of wheat or barley is. And I assure you, the word penny is not doing us much good for our understanding. So let me read verse six for you out of the New King James Version. It says, I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine. The use of quart helps us grasp this a little bit better. This is a dry quart of grain, about as much as a man in that day could carry in his two hands, heaped up in his two hands. The penny in the King James Version is nothing like our penny today. In fact, I would dare say if you could get that much wheat for a penny, that would be a pretty good deal. Well, that's not the picture here. The King James, New King James uses the word denarius and at least it points us to something that we know we don't know. 
We can look that up. A denarius was a common coin that was equivalent to a day's wage. So when you look at verse 6, a quart of wheat is being sold for a day's wage and three quarts of barley would be sold for the same price. Wheat is the more ideal grain of choice. It makes good bread that was sustaining, although a quart of wheat would barely make a loaf of bread that would, that would maintain one individual for a day. Barley was vastly inferior. And so the, the image here that you could buy three quarts of barley for the same price, but the nutritional value of three quarts of barley isn't much better than a quart of wheat. The only reason you would consider doing that is at least the barley fills up some stomach space. The picture is that a man will work a full day just to be able to obtain enough wheat to make a piece of bread for himself. A family man would surely take the barley because although he's worked a full day for it, the barley's not going to be enough to provide nutrition for his family, but at least it's going to fill up their bellies a little bit. When the voice says, see that you don't hurt the oil and the wine, it could mean either that the wealthier folks, the ones with olive trees and vineyards, weren't experiencing quite the same level of suffering, but more likely, the meaning is that this place is kind of a limit on the devastation at this point. Grain crops are severely affected, but olive trees and vineyards survive for a time. Listen, the kind of inflation that we're seeing at a supermarket now pales in comparison to the privation and prices that are coming when this black horse brings famine throughout the earth. So the white horse brought a deceptive peace. The rider on the red horse smashes that peace and brings a time of war and conflict. The rider on the black horse brings this devastating famine And then the fourth one is the pale horse. And before we read verses 7 and 8 again about the pale horse, I want you to know a little something about this word pale in Greek. It's the Greek word chloros. It's where we get our word chlorophyll from, that green pigment in vegetation, right? Chloros describes a a sickly yellowish green color. And so some have described this as a a sickly horse. Some have described it as a a pale green horse. Verse 7, when he'd opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, come and see. And I looked and behold, a pale horse and his name that sat on him was death and hell followed with them. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. Listen, there is no grim reaper who is out for your life. There is only God who is fully in control of every aspect of your life from the cradle to the grave. But, but if there was ever a time in scripture to conjure up that grim reaper in your imagination, you put him on the back of this fourth sickly pale horse. While we're dealing with specific words here, the word hell used in verse eight is Hades. And it's not 
perfectly clear that it intends for us to imagine hell, the place of eternal torment. The word Hades can simply mean the grave, and I think that's what the context is here. Yeah, the, the hoof beats of this pale horse brings death riding, and the grave is sure to follow. So this terrifying scene continues that vision of war and famine that escalate until the fourth seal opens, the fourth horseman comes, brings every kind of death along with him. Several kinds of death are mentioned at the end of verse 8. To kill with a sword and with hunger and with death. The idea there is the word for plague or pestilence, sickness. And with the beasts of the earth. That worldwide famine apparently affects more than just the human world because I take this to say that the the beasts of the earth, the animal world, starts attacking people in ways that they wouldn't ordinarily do in most circumstances. A faithful study of scripture would also tell us this fourth writer brings death through natural disasters like earthquakes as well. But the most startling part of verse 8 isn't the means of death, It is the magnitude of death brought by these four horsemen. Verse 8 says, Power was given unto them over a fourth part of the earth. To put this into perspective, as if that were possible, you've been living through the pandemic of COVID-19 worldwide. It has... has resulted in an estimated about six and a half million deaths. And you've seen how that has affected your life. The combined result of these four horsemen killing one-fourth of the world population would mean that they would take the life of over 300 times that many. The world population right now is about 8 billion Two billion folks wouldn't survive these first four seals being opened. And that's just a taste of what's to come in the remaining seals and trumpets and bowls of wrath. Since the time that John recorded this vision 2,000 years ago, nothing has happened that has come anywhere close to this kind of devastation, not the Spanish flu or COVID, not all the wars combined, not the Jewish Holocaust of World War II, nothing else has come close. So what lesson can we take from what's coming? Well, we can huddle in fear. I guess that's one lesson we could take. But if you are part of the wicked world that has rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ, maybe this can teach the lesson of Hebrews 10.31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The thunderous hoofbeats of these writers is quickly approaching, and yet there is nothing that they bring with them that is so shattering as what you'll experience in the day where you stand before the Lord and face his direct wrath on your soul. You have far more to fear from the righteous one on the throne than you do from any of these judgments that get unleashed. Flee to the safety and security of Jesus Christ. Look to him in faith. 
The other lesson we can learn is to keep our focus on the right place because none of these horses or their riders or the devastation that, that follows, none of that is really the main focus of this text. Jesus is the main focus of this text. He is all over this text. Everything that happens, happens as he opens the scroll to bring it forward. I told you earlier, I would try to prove to you that this has always been the plan and purpose of Jesus. So let's think about what we've just read here in this text. We've seen the first writer bring a deceptive piece. The second smashes that piece by bringing war and conflict between nations. The third one ushers in a devastating worldwide famine. The fourth is followed by all manner of deaths, all kinds of disasters all over the world. Look, if you would, with me to Matthew chapter 24. I want you to see the words of Jesus. Matthew 24. We'll just start at verse 3. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the signs of your coming and of the end of the world? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that it be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there shall be famines, and pestilences, and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then shall they deliver you up. To be afflicted and shall kill you and shall, you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. You think about what Jesus just said. He's essentially outlined Revelation 6, 1 through 8 for us. He's outlined our text. There'll be deception of people trying to look like him, but there's not. There will be wars. There will be famine. There will be death by pestilences and earthquakes. This is the beginning of sorrows, he said. It's just the start. In fact, you really wonder if, if, if you really wonder if Revelation eight, uh, chapter 6 is following Jesus' outline from Matthew 24, that's part of why I read verse 9 in Matthew 24. When you keep reading, Jesus says in verse 9 that he, he speaks of the martyrs that will be persecuted and, and killed and hated throughout the world. What's next in Revelation 6? Well, the fifth seal is opened in verse 9 and I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and the witness they had. All of this is unfolding according to the plan of Jesus. Don't take your eyes off of the one who is worthy to open the seals of God's scroll for human history. Jesus is the determining cause for the way everything unfolds. You can fear this, but you can trust him. I do trust him. 
Because even in the darkest moments of human experience, history does not move forward the will of wicked men, but instead unfolds the sovereign declaration of Jesus Christ our Lord.